Does everybody have a copy of the Psalm attachment that I? Psalm 17. Hmm? Psalm 17. Yeah, there's a number of. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's hold off on that. Let's, any, any prayer requests tonight? We all need prayers in our marriages, I think. Um, it's not easy. Some for harder. <coughs> I hope everybody has gotten used to my sense of humor by now. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a playfulness in me. I hope, I hope you'll pardon it or make a place for it. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us through the day, um, particularly for the Eucharist um, when we receive it and you. Um, For all the many ways you call us to you, um, I'm especially grateful myself for this work that we're doing together. I I just often have the sense that so many of us are in compartments that we um, go to church on the weekends and we go to work and they remain a little bit divided too much. Um, My hope is that we will learn to see you um, a little bit more clearly in our everyday lives, that those walls will soften some, and that our faith will increase because we know you're all around us. Um, Even if we can't always see you, um, there's nothing that goes on that doesn't involve you, but so often we get too busy and forget that. So, Um, strengthen us, let us be strengthened in our efforts here together to see um, that you are always present and at work to strengthen our faith and also to be more capable of making a defense of our faith, understanding it better so that we're better able to take it to the world, to do the evangelizing that you call us to, that we don't want to get stuck. This is St. Francis, our Pope. We don't want to get stuck in our pews. Help us to move out, um, to have the humility and the courage, even when it might be embarrassing, to bring you to the world, um, risk ourselves. Um, I ask for a blessing on Holly and, sorry, Elliot, as they prepare for their marriage. Um, We so take things for granted when we're younger. There's just a lot we don't understand about being together and what it will ask of it. Um, um, Trusting that when it's all over, our time together will have deepened us in our loves. It will have grown more capable of loving um, for all that we go through with each other. Increase in all of us a spirit of humility in everything that we do in our marriages and a spirit of courage. Um, Help us um, to do everything we can to bring you to help draw out of those that we love you so that we're more a part of you in all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen.
Um, I just went online very quickly today because I was so taken by um, the importance of justice in the Iliad. And I hope I can make that clear in just a few minutes. So I just quickly went online and, and copied some psalms down. I'm not sure that they're the best one. The one that I wanted to get is um, that passage. I think, it's, I think it's from Proverbs. I'm not sure. I think there's a psalm that speaks to it itself, but I'm sure most of you are familiar with that psalm in which the person is, God, my mind is, he, he's concerned about those who will attack the man of justice. And he's making clear that what he wants to do is crucify him, do everything he can um, to attack him. And um, it, it so looks forward to Christ in the sense that it will only be, it will only be that man who is most fully persecuted that will reveal God's love for us. If that's not clear, let me make it this way. In Plato's Republic, in an amazing way, Plato makes the point that we will never, this Plato is pre-Christian, he's 400 years before Christ. Plato makes the point that we will never know a just man because his, his whole purpose is to define what justice is in the, in the Republic, that book of his. He makes the point that we will never know who the just man is until we find a man um, from whom everything will be taken, absolutely everything, everything, so that we know that he has nothing to complain about anymore, or that he, is, that he isn't holding on to some self-righteousness, he's not under the law, you know, saying, look how good I am. It will only be that man who loses everything who will be crucified. That's Plato, who will be crucified before we will know what true justice is. Because so long as that's true, there will always be something we're holding on to. Some self-righteousness, something for ourselves, some selfishness. And that was Plato before Christ. And there's a, there's a psalm, I'm sure you've all heard it. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it recurs every year, I mean, I hear, but, I, but I couldn't remember which one it was. Um, if my mind were better, we'd have another psalm, but this is what we've got. So what I wanted to do is find a psalm that spoke to justice. And just take a look at what I've given you. There's two psalms. But in addition to those, there were all these phrases from the Old Testament and New Testament having to do with justice. So look at the bottom of page three. You all have two pages, right? Just for example, from Isaiah, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery, wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. The next page, Luke, Isaiah again. Um, Psalm 33, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. I, I, I've tried to make this point over and over again because I'm, I'm probably too sensitive, too conscious of living in a Protestant world that's, um, that doesn't acknowledge the logos in the world. What matters most is accepting Christ as your savior and once you're saved, you're saved. For us, it's not true. I mean, you know that every mass you go to daily, daily, on a daily basis, every mass you go to, the Old Testament speaks to justice. That's its recurrent theme. You can't go to a mass and not hear an Old Testament psalm. Justice, 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 justice. And the New Testament will be love, 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 love. And I've said this before because our approach to what Christ did was so often to make love unconditional as if it did away with justice. And I've asked this question before, would Christ ever do anything to undermine his father? I just hope this is so clear. 
He comes from the Father. It's not like he's going to ignore justice. He came, he said, I came to fulfill the law. So the problem we have, and so by the way, I, I think by unconditional love, we're, we're meant to understand that love doesn't take away justice. It means to love somebody unconditionally, no matter what they do. But it doesn't mean doing away. If a man commits a murder, put him in jail. You don't eliminate justice. But when you put him in jail, you never stop loving him, no matter how hard that is. Is everybody clear? I just think that's so important. And I think in our world, because we so often hear unconditional love, if you hold somebody to justice, they're going to look at you as if you're bigoted or crueler. Our call is to work for justice in a spirit of unconditional love. I hope that's clear. Because I just think we live in a world that makes it black, white, and separates them. And because justice is such an important theme of um, the Iliad, I just wanted to underscore it tonight. Um, Chris, if you can do anything for the audio system, I'll be grateful, but I think at this point it's helpless. <laughs> but just, why don't you go, like, you all can hear me. Do you guys have any trouble? Let it go, let it go, we're good, okay? Everybody understands, I hope, what I'm saying. That doesn't make our life harder, it makes, I mean easier, it makes it harder. Because sometimes we can uphold justice cruelly in the wrong way, self-righteously. Or. So with that in mind, let me, um, let me take Psalm 17. I'm not going to read all of it because it's long, but I'm, I'm just going to go through lines of it. Lord, hear my just plea, pay attention to my cry, listen to my prayer. So it does not come from lying lips. Justice for me will come from your presence. Your eyes see what is right. When you probe my heart and examine me at night, when you refine me, you will find nothing wrong, for I have determined that I will not transgress with my mouth. As for the ways of mankind, I have, according to the words of your lip, avoided the ways of the violent. Go down. Protect me is the most precious part of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who have afflicted me, from my enemies who have surrounded me. They are imprisoned by their own prosperity, booty, substitute booty tonight. They have boasted proudly with their mouth. Now they have encircled our paths and are determined to cast us down to the ground. Like a lion, they desire to rip us to pieces. Go down, deliver me from the wicked by your sword, from men, Lord, by your hand, from men who belong to this world, whose reward is only in this life. But as for your treasured ones, may their stomachs be full, may their children have an abundance, and may they leave wealth to their offspring. But as for me, justified, I will, be your, I will behold your face when I awake. Your presence will satisfy me. Just a comment before we turn to the Iliad. I will reinforce this because to me it's so important. Everything that's said here in some ways applies to the Iliad, even if it's not a direct fit, except for one thing. And that is, it's really clear from the Iliad, from everything that Homer does, that whatever is to be, whatever is to be Achilles' final end, Whatever we're to make him at the end, whatever he does at the end only happens because he accepts his death. We know that. You know, that, isn't, that isn't part of the psalm tradition, but that's what Homer gives us. Homer sees that a man can never be fully, 
what he is. And that doesn't mean um, when he's prosperous with booty or treasure um, because Achilles gives everything away practically at the end. He will only become who he's been given to be once he accepts death in his life. That's, that's the nature of the Iliad. So. Okay. Um, if I can do this quickly. Um, I want to I want to get to the end and um, try to say a few words about the Odyssey before we leave tonight. A couple of things that I want to just quickly cover. One of the things that I've been pressing weekly for the last several weeks, and maybe from the beginning, I can't remember, but you know that my contention is that we don't read very well. We think we do. The more educated we are, the better we think we read. And my claim is that we don't. As a matter of fact, the more educated we are, the the more likely is we're not going to read well because we think we're so smart. Um, and we see that over and over and over again in the Iliad, in the men themselves and the characters. They keep thinking they read things right, and they don't. They get it wrong often. Achilles, sometimes. Agamemnon, for sure. Hector, constantly. Um, and I wanted to make the point for us as readers. I'm assuming that you all experienced this. Maybe some of you didn't, but I know it was true for me when I first started my work in the Iliad. And you know that my work, that whatever I do now is the product of 25 years of teaching it. So it's not like I just read it yesterday. I've gone over and over and over in this work. And each time I've gone over it, it's, it's gotten better and better and better. Um, that's not because it changes. <laughs> you know that. Um, but I want to say this. I'm, I'm assuming that all of you have had this sort of experience. When I raise the question about the shields, you know, Thetis' shield and the fact that Patroclus took the armor and went into battle and he got killed and then Hector did. And Achilles had, or the Achilles had the new armor made. Thetis went to Hephaestus, the god, you know. But I'm assuming that most of you have gone through the Iliad. You would not have put those two things together. I mean, and I don't want to, I'm not, not trying to be negative right now. I, I, as readers, I don't think most of you would have picked that up. Unless you're a brilliant person like Homer or Shakespeare, I don't think most of us would see that. We would read it and go on. And I think that's true of most of the scenes. I'm trusting that you went through the Iliad. Those who, I know Mary's said a number of times she's really enjoyed the reading. I'm glad and proud of her, genuinely. You know that when we read it, we go on and we don't put things together. We just keep reading and we enjoy it. It's an interesting story. But putting things together is something hard to do. We can't do it well until we've read the whole thing. We cannot understand parts when we're reading them unless we see them in light of the whole. I, that's a point I've been pushing. <laughs> um, make a place for it, because I'm going to keep saying it. Um, we don't read well until we, we don't grasp holes. And I hope everybody hears that. That means we don't see holes. We will not see them until the end of time when we'll be given a glimpse of things that we don't have right now. So part of us should enter into life aware that no, how, no matter how much understanding we're trying to bring to something, there's a lot we don't see. So I'm trusting that you've experienced that as readers, that when you go through the Iliad, you didn't put the shields together. You didn't put the end together with the beginning. I'll do it tonight. You know, but those are things we just don't see. We don't read well. One of the reasons we're reading, and at least in this setting, is to get better at reading. Yeah? I mean, why are we here? I wouldn't be here otherwise. No, you have to come up here. Come on, no, come, get some food and come up. 
Bless your soul. <laughs> Come on. I miss you when you're... I missed you. I missed you. I did. Um, so, the theme of reading, it's, it's, it's a quality in the book, among the characters, it's a quality that we bring. One of the reasons for doing this work is to help us learn to read better, to deepen our understanding of things. I believe if we get to Dante, we're together that long, you'll know that the, the most important theme of Dante is learning. It won't, the battle that he will be fighting will be learning. I'm not kidding, that's his battle. He's gonna be learning about he hell, hell, purgatory, heaven. That's, he's learning, that, that's a spiritual battle. He doesn't have armor on, he doesn't have a sword, he's not fighting against somebody with a shield. He's dealing with his own intellect and heart. The, the greatest gift we've all been given is to learn to grow in knowledge and love, to get better as we move towards our end. Um, some people sadly think that after high school and college, you know, they've done it all and it's over. To me, that's a sad loss. But so this, the theme of reading is important. You know, it will be for all the books we read. Troy, I've been speaking of Troy as an enabling city. Remember, it's tribal in character. Prime is an enabling father. If it doesn't become clear in the early part of the book when they have that Trojan meeting, you know, when Antoner says, give the girl back, and Paris says, I'm not going to. It should become clear at the end when Achilles returns to the war and he meets that strange figure like Caon. Remember, he looks at him, and, he, and he, I went through this last week. He, described, he describes the experience like seeing a ghost because he just captured him and ransomed him. And like, like Han says, he, it's only 12 days since he was ransomed, and now he's facing death again. Because Priam bought him off. He ransomed him. What, what Homer's showing us is the futility of constantly trying to protect people from death or suffering. Um, that there's a danger in that. Um, and Achilles looks at him when, um, like Han says, spare me. And Achilles says, Patroclus is with a better man than you. He's dead. I'm a better than man. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Face your end. He's saying something stark. That's one of the great truths of the Iliad. We're all going to meet our end. How are we going to meet it? That's, that's the central theme tonight when we get to the battle between Achilles and Hector. So I think what Homer's showing us is that Troy's an enabling city, and there's something enabling in the east. It's too tribal. It run, the bloodline runs through the, the Eastern culture. And so often it, it gets in the way of a person fulfilling his potential, whatever potential he has. Um, remember that the shift that takes place when Achilles loses his shield that he gets from Thetis, his mother, is familial. That's passed on to him from his mother. When he gets the shield from his Phaistos, that's directly from the gods. So I think we're meant to see that, that Achilles has moved beyond the family, that he's stepping into something uniquely individual that's inherently good in a human being. The East doesn't see it. That's the beginning of the West, the West does. My claim is that you know from the beginning that is the Iliad is, is about it's a refounding. It, it's, it, 
It's a story about a man, about the West coming to some sense that there is this inherent dignity to the human person and there's a transcendent quality to it. It comes from God. Christ himself shows that. Um, we looked at the War of the Gods and we saw that um, when Achilles re-entered the war, the gods entered with him. And there was this, what I call the Psychomachia, this heavenly battle. Um, if that seems a little bit um, what unbelievable to you, just know this going forward. If we get to Dante, um, when Dante and Virgil ascend the Purgatorio on their way to heaven, into the paradise, into the heavens, there will come a moment when one of the souls is released from his purgation. And when he is, the mountain trembles. Nature responds. When Achilles enters the war, it represents that, that moment when he is completely reoriented to nature. He's coming to something in himself and nature responds. There's no way it could not. In Dante, um, the heavens um, express a joy when somebody has attained beatitude and enters the kingdom. I'm, I'm assuming this is, I mean, is, is strange or is unbelievable. You know that when somebody's baptized, we sing a song, hallelujah. I mean, we sing a song in praise. I hope our hearts take a joy. For a moment, we're glad for that child. And I'm assuming that most of us share that in a wedding, when a wedding comes, and some sense even in a funeral, that we, we mourn the passing of somebody, but hopefully we can take a joy, believe that some good is there that will be celebrated in the next life, even if we're mourning. So a community um, shakes. Um, it, it can't contain itself. Nature is responsive. So when he goes back into the war, there is this spiritual battle, and it you know that it will result in the, the, um, the defeat of the Eastern gods by the Western largely. We went through that. Remember, Athena defeats both Ares and Aphrodite. Hera defeats um, Artemis. Um, and um, Hephaestus, the god of craft, defeats Xanthos, the river. So when you put those battles together, what you're seeing, what we're seeing is that um, what Homer's showing us is, is that there is something in the West that affirms the rational over the passionate, the cognitive over the emotions, and art over nature. If I was the god of craft, Xanthos is the river. He was the one that was going to swallow Achilles up. So there's this affirmation of the rational powers in man and his, his capacity to create, to use art to make something good that... Um, that shows a fulfillment to his nature in a way that's not so in the East. That's why most people flood to the West and Europe and America, not the other way around. We love freedom. Remember when we talked about the two assemblies, when the book opened, the Kian assembly was full of turbulence, arguing, fighting. In the East, quiet, Pacific, no quarrels. When Priam said, go back to war, let the gods decide, it was over. So we're watching um, two cultures at war and something emerging at the result. I, I've suggested it's the sense of the logos, that there's this divine power working with men to help men achieve some greatness 
some power for perfection that the human person has in the natural order, in the natural order. Um, the theme of justice has been important all along. Um, let me just, let me turn to, um, I hope I'm right, I hope I'm, turn to page, or chapter 19 for a second. Chapter 19, line 180, I think. This is shortly after Agamemnon and Achilles um, reconcile. And Agamemnon has offered Achilles all these gifts um, as a way of um, expressing his gratitude and what's due. I wanna come back to this term, what's due. And um, at the bottom of 396, Odysseus says, Come then, tell your men to scatter and bid them get ready a meal. And as for the gifts, let the Lord of men, Agamemnon, bring them to the middle of our assembly so that all the Achaeans can see them before their eyes, so your own heart may be pleasured. And let him stand up before the Argives and swear an oath to you that he never entered into her bed and never lay with her as is natural for people, my Lord, between men and women. And by this, let the spirit in your heart be made gracious after that, in his own shelter, let him appease you with a generous meal so that you will lack nothing of what is due you. And you, son of Atreus, after this, be more righteous to another man, for there's no fault when even one who is a king appeases a man when the king was the first one to be angry. We're learning how important it is to, be, um, to give another his due because you know that the, the book began when... Um, when Chryses brought the ransom for his daughter, Agamemnon refused it. Achilles said, give the, go back, there's a plague. Uh, Agamemnon wouldn't do it, and he takes Bryces, Achilles' girl. It's at that point that Achilles wants to take a sword out and kill him. It's not just a, it's not just a matter of what we would call today disrespect. It's not giving another his due. Achilles is so outraged by that that he pulls out of the war. And you know that there's a terrible cost to that, but ultimately, it leads to this change in Achilles, this new sense of, I'm going to say, responsibility. He's the one who acknowledges his fault. This new sense of um, honor among men and how important it is to be just to another man. Um, Plato's going to go on and say, and Aristotle with him, we cannot give another his due. We cannot give another his due until we straighten out ourselves. How can we give another his due when there's so many th things wrong with us? So unless we work at being virtuous, we'll never be able to give to others what's owed to them. Now, I relate this for a moment to the whole theme of ransoming in the book, because remember, the book begins with a ransom. That is what's due. He wants to buy his daughter back. And it ends, it's gonna end with a ransoming. So it's raising this question, what's a man worth? How do we determine the worth of a man? I've gone over this and over this. I, I think the Iliad's the greatest critique of modern America that's been written. Is there anybody in America who isn't aspiring to be better than somebody else, who very often doesn't turn in him or use him? The higher you get, the more arrogant you get, the more likely you are you're gonna use another person as an object. Women are gonna do that as they enter the workplace. What's a person do? What's his worth? Will money ever, you know, you, things happen to people and they take these million dollar lawsuits 
does, for the loss of a person, will a million dollars bring a person back or satisfy your conscience? What is the worth of a man? That's the fundamental question of the Iliad. And Homer's making it clear that there's some intrinsic dignity that's divine. It won't be answered without a different relation to the gods. That's what the whole story's about. So this theme of justice and ransoming, it begins with a refused ransom and it ends with a ransom that's successful. And I want to make this clear. Christ came as a ransom to answer a wrong. But he did it by bringing something divine. Homer's dealing with something human. human. He's showing a natural justice, a justice in the natural order. That men have to take care in the natural order, even though he's aware that there's something divine going on. Is that clear? So in some ways, he's, in some ways, the, the point I'm trying to, it's a subtle point, but I don't want to lose it. In, in some ways, this is pointing towards Christ, who was a ransom for us. He paid. He paid our debt. The Iliad is about constantly paying off debts and failing. But, but we learn, you know, as we move along through the Iliad, um, a change takes place that makes possible a good at the end that wasn't possible at the beginning. That's where I'm going right now. But hold on, is that, is that not clear? Any questions about that? Turn to page 451, just quickly. We, we have, I've only touched on this, and I don't want it, to... It, it will become more important as we go ahead. Um, the theme of the body... Um, we've been involved in a book in which people are killed sometimes dozens every page and we're watching them lose this life because their body's taken away from them so the body has been a fundamental focus for the old work even though we've not spent a lot of time and I, I don't want to do it now because we've got other things to look at but I just want to plant the seed in everybody's mind take a look at this um, after after Achilles um, buries Patroclus on this funeral pyre this magnificent pyre that he built for him to send him to the next life um, the men eat Achilles is absolutely worn out and you could imagine any of you who've gone through a funeral and the work you do and struggles and when it's all over, you're exhausted and go to sleep. Um, to, at the bottom of 452, um, it's about 95 or so. It's 20, sorry, 23, 23. Um, the ghost of Patroclus comes to Achilles at the top of the page about line 65. The ghost of unhappy Patroclus, all in his likeness for stature, the lovely eyes, voice, wore such clothing as Patroclus had. You sleep, Achilles, you've forgotten me. So in his dream, we know this, for all, the great, all the great poets do this. All the great poets, <laughs> a thousand years before Freud, we knew that some things come to us in dreams that don't come to us in our waking life, I think because reason pushes them off. It's like a protection, we get preoccupied. But when reason relaxes, it's like a, we relax our resistance 
and we make an opening for the supernatural. Freud would have said the unconscious. The problem with Freud is it's the animal, it's the somatic, it's the body. Freud didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in a spiritual unconscious. Most of the poets believe in a spiritual unconscious, that's what we're getting here. Patroclus comes to him in sleep and um, chastises him. He describes the way they were raised, um, how he was brought up um, as his friend. And he says at the bottom of 452, about line 95 or so, or this is Achilles responding, how is it, O hallowed head of my brother, you have come back to me here and tell me all these several things. Yet surely I'm accomplishing all, I'm doing everything I should, and I shall do as you tell me, but stand closer to me and let us, if only for a little, embrace and take full satisfaction from the dirge of sorrow. I'm assuming that some of us, if we've lost a really dear friend, it wouldn't be surprising if in our dream, we had a dream that was tender. Some might even wake us up in the middle of the night in sorrow. Sometimes it might frighten us. I mean, you know, who knows what can... But those things happen. The, the unconscious um, opens and it, make, it becomes a part of something in our dream. So he spoke with his old arms, reached for him but could not take him, but the spirit went underground like vapor, as if this had to happen before Patroclus could be released to the next life. But the spirit went underground like vapor with a thin cry and Achilles started awake staring and drove his hands together and spoke and his words were sorrowful. O wonder, even in the house of Hades, there is something, a soul and an image, but there's no real heart of life in it. That is, it has no body. When we do the Odyssey, we're gonna see this because Odysseus is actually gonna go into the underworld. So he's gonna be talking to shades. But this moment is an affirmation of the immortality of the human soul. The soul goes on to the next life. The difference is it has no body. And that's not a small thing for the Greeks because without the body, a person's not a person. I want everybody to think about this because according to our belief, Catholics, Christians, we believe that the soul goes to the next life but we also believe, from what Christ said, there will be a transfiguration, we will receive a body, and it will be unlike anything we've known here. On the, on the transfiguration, remember when Christ went on the mount? So we, we know that we're not meant to be just spirits. That's not our life. God made us as humans with a body. At the resurrection, our bodies will be returned, glorified. That's our hope, that's our promise. We're not angels. I get, I, it drives me nuts when people start talking about us as angels. We're not angels, we're human, that's our glory. We're not angels. There is some glory that he gave to us by being human. This work to me is an affirmation of what it means to be fully human. So here's this moment when Patroclus comes to him and you're gonna see it repeated in every, every work we read. It's gonna be in the Odyssey, it's gonna be in the Aeneid, it's gonna be in the Divine Comedy. Virgil's gonna put his arms around Stasius whom he loved, and he's a ghost, and his arms will come together. It, it's a moment, it, um, Wordsworth um, wrote a poem called Surprised by Love. T.S. Eliot wrote a book called Surprised by Love, talking about the same thing. Because what happens in this moment that our love so overcomes us that we approach a person forgetting that he's dead. We hear instances of that from widows, you know, widowers, and, that they'll be sitting on a couch alone and they'll be so overcome with something that they'll turn to tell somebody who's not been there for years. You're overcome by joy. It's a natural expression. 
God made us as humans, we will get our bodies back. Whatever long is, is there will one day be satisfied. Here in the Greek world, it's not, because there's no sense of a resurrection. But there's not a question in Homer's mind or Achilles that the soul is immortal. Patroclus just came to him. He was so taken, he tried to embrace him and, and realized it was a shade. It's a touching moment. So the body has been an issue, um, whole and parts. Um, I said last week, I made this statement. This is according to Aristotle and it's afterwards, but I really I think he got it from Homer. Homer says in the politics that um, the polis is prior to and greater than the individual or the family because it has a nature. I want everybody to, and Chris, I'm gonna, if, I, want, I want your mind here for a say in a second, but he said in time, in time, the individual and the family come first, right? I mean, you gotta be alive and you gotta get married to have children in order to multiply and make a community, right? So in time, the individual comes first, the, what, what, what Aristotle is saying is we have a nature and that nature is larger than and prior to an individual or a family. Okay, and what he means by that is, I don't know how else to, Chris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wanna ask you if you can raise your question again, if it's still. When a woman is pregnant, what comes out of her womb is not a cockroach. It's not a wooden desk. You know, it's not an alien. It's a human being because she's human. So there's something in our nature that's prior to that moment of birth or we wouldn't come out that way. The modern world has lost that so that they say what's in a woman isn't even a human. If it's not a human, what is it? She's a human being. Nothing's gonna come out of her that's not human. So there's a nature that precedes, it's greater than. And what he's assuming is that nature is larger than the individual because, because our end is in a community. It's only in a community, in a polis, that we can attain our fullness. In a tribe, we can't. In an empire, we can't. And by polis, I don't think he just means, we so rationalize things in the modern world. We think a city is defined by its physical boundaries. Yeah? You get to the edge of grapevine and you're passing into another town. Aristotle's not talking about that. He's talking about a community that has a, a quality of self-sufficiency that it can get along on its own so that an individual can benefit from that. So the individual can become complete because he carries the whole in him. He's, he's, he's more capable of fulfilling his potential, what God gave him to be, than he would be if he were in a tribe or an empire. And that notion is emerging now in Achilles. Hector's the opposite. Hector belongs, he is the very greatest that a tribal culture can produce. Now, if we take that notion of a, the, the polis is prior to, or the community is prior to and greater than the individual, the family, it, it means it has to also um, the, go outside of its time boundaries. So if you happen to grow up in a school where you've read Aristotle, or, or let's say St. Thomas, because I remember the first time I was saying, I can't imagine my life without St. Thomas. He died a thousand years ago. Or Aristotle, or, or Homer. So whatever wholeness we're talking about is layered. It's not confined to this time. 
Why are we all here? I mean, one of the purposes of this work together is to recover a tradition. Because we've lost it. To, to try to become more complete as human beings. So whatever the polis is, it's just not bound by spatial boundaries or time boundaries. To become a complete person, we can, none of us can become the person God gave us to be without help from others. Does that mean it's restricted to our time? No, absolutely not. I wouldn't be doing this. My hope is that you're all going to carry Homer with you from this day forward. Pull out your swords and start hacking people down. <laughs> anyway, it, you know, this, remember, when Achilles goes back into the war, he has that shield. It's everything. There's a completeness. There's an order with the divine. He's recovered a proper sense of honor. And it means he can't do it without renouncing all of his booty. He's going to accept death. Until he learns to put everything away, he will never become who he's given to be. And then there's this amazing wholeness. There's the paradox at the center of the Iliad. Until you give up everything, you will never enter into that fullness. And here he is. I let everybody down. It was my fault. I'm going back into battle. Nobody can touch him. And we're going to see what he's about to do is he's going to reverse everything that he did at the beginning or everything that happened at the beginning. So the sense of, you all understand this notion of wholeness. We don't think that way because we think in time, individual, couples, community. Um, Aristotle's saying, because he has a metaphysical sense of things, that's part of his greatness. There's a nature to us. It's partly metaphysical. It's communal. We cannot become who we are alone. Aristotle said, if you're isolated, you're either a god or a beast. As human beings, we were meant to work together. So if you, if you happen to go to a college, you know, that valued the past, you would have read Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, you know, you name it. Chris, you had a serious question last week, and I don't know if I answered it. Does that answer it? Because, I mean, it's such a good question. If you think about polis as literal terms, or just think about it as a spatial boundary, but if you think of it as a concept or, or something having a metaphysical dimension, then even if, because I, I happen to believe, this is my own personal belief, I happen to believe that there are aspects of America that are like an empire. It's impersonal, it's inhuman. There are aspects of an America that are tribal. We're caught in our races. The polis is somewhere indefinite, existing? Can you nail it down? Can you define its boundaries? No, but wherever we're being part of a church community, you're all going to church weekly. You're, you've entered into something larger than yourself that's helping you to grow into the wholeness that I'm talking about, this thing that, human, that God gave us as humans. So it's not like you can say, here it is, or so we, we can identify tribes. We can even, I think, identify some aspects of America that are empire-like. It's much harder to get a hold of the polis, but it's there. Or we, we would not be doing this work together. It's my, my contention. Does that help? Any questions about that? Because it's, it's, this, it's this wholeness that Christ came to help us recover. 
And you know that, the, I mean, this is so compatible with uh, Homer. We know from Christ that we can't do it without dying. That the love he calls us to requires giving up ourselves, constantly trying to deny ourselves. And, and I'm saying that knowing how hard it is for all of us. Okay. Any questions on that? Okay. Um, holding parts. Okay, this week. Let's finish this book to try to. Um, I want to look at that final battle between um, Hector and Achilles to complete this work that we've done. Remember when we, I'm so sorry, Helen's not here. Remember when we first began and I asked you when we looked at the opening quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon, and then I took you to book six when Hector returned home and there was that tender scene between him and Andromache where she weeps and says, don't go back to battle. Achilles has killed my family, she names him. You are my father, my brother, my, you know, you are everything to me. And their son is there, and he takes the son to him before he leaves, and his son shrieks because he's got on that war helmet, and it's, it's a very tender scene. And I remember asking you the question, so who's better? Who's the better man, Achilles or Hector? And um, I think lots of, I mean, some people said Hector, and he looks like more sensitive, and Achilles seems really selfish. He withdraws from the war. It's like a too proud man, and the kinds are going to die when he does that. And then I reminded you of Plato's cave, that so often we look at things in terms of appearances and measure them that way. Um, one of the, we did uh, Boethius in, in uh, St. Francis, and one of the things that Boethius says, I, this will probably be a shock to you, but I hope we'll get to it together, but Boethius is gonna make the argument after taking Boethius, who's about to be executed, back into his past and his origins from God and what it means to be to have God as our creator and goes forward in this philosophic argument. He reaches a point where he says, if, if God is our beginning and our end and he's a God of love, there's nothing he's doing that isn't bringing good out of evil. Because the opening question is, uh, Boethius is gonna be executed wrongly. And his question is the Job question. Um, why does God allow evil? A, a God who allows evil must be an evil God. And lady philosophy has to answer that question. It's the Job question. It's, it's a question behind almost every work we're going to read. And Boethius shows, using reason, that that's not so, that our God is a God of love. I, I don't want, it's, it's, a, it's, it's actually a pretty simple argument, but it's, it one that, it's one that deserves time. But she'll come to a point and say, there is no fortune that isn't good. There's no bad fortune. Um... That if our God is a God of love, he's taking everything that we do that's stupid so often and often bad and working to bring it. So that as we move towards the end of our life, we will know a greater grace, a greater joy, a greater gratitude, you know, all these things. So when I put the two characters together, it was with some sense that lots of readers think Hector is the hero of the story. He's so much more appealing. Achilles seems like he's a cold-hearted guy. Um, anyway, I put them together. Now we're moving towards the end, okay? And I want to go to that last battle, so let's go there. Achilles has emerged from the water. He was going to be drowned by Xanthos. He goes into the battle and he starts killing people right and left. 
Now, before we go to this battle, I want you to remember a couple of passages that we've looked at together with Hector. When Hector took Achilles' armor off of Patroclus, remember when he killed him? He was going to cut his head off. And it's only because of the lust of the battle that he was pulled away. But he wanted to cut that head off. He wanted to desecrate it. We saw a scene in which Glauco scolds Hector for abandoning Sarpedon. Sarpedon was one of the greatest Trojan soldiers. And Hector's too preoccupied with other things in armor, and he abandons him. And um, um, Glauco said, you've always maintained that you, you and your family could do it all. If you left to yourself, you, the hubris of that tribal sense, you know, all you need is your family. And, and it's so untrue because the city would have been destroyed a long time ago if that had been the case. Glaucon's scolding him for that. Hector chases after men to put on um, Achilles' armor. So he leaves the battle to put Achilles' armor on. So men are going to be defenseless. He already, got, he already has his own armor. So there's this hubris to have, or call it envy, this armor. When he sees Achilles' horses, he takes after them, wants them as well. Um, Polydamus, at that moment when Achilles is um, coming into the war and things are turning, Polydamus says, go back to the city in safety. Hector says, no, we'll stay out here. And I, I read that. He remembered, if you have any possessions now that you're worried about losing, give them up. This is in book 18, line 300. I think I read it last week. Give it up. It would be better for it to be in common for one of us to have it rather than give it over to the Achaeans. And we know that Troy is it's called the, the realm of gold. That's the way it's described. It's got these treasures, or it did have them. And I think it's been pillaged for nine and a half years. I'm not quite sure where they are. But we've watched Hector make these choices, commit himself in these acts that raise questions about just how do we look at Hector as a character when we set him next to Achilles? Now turn to page 437. I have to find it, Doc. It's book 22, I think. Let me just check it. Yeah, it's book 22. You all can hear me. Chris, can you hear me okay? Hector has now taken flight, and he moved towards the city walls. His mother and father, Priam and Hecabe, are on the walls, pleading to their son to come in. They don't want to see him dead. It's what a mother and father would want. And um, we're coming now to the, the final crisis. There's been a couple of them that we've looked at, but book nine was another. One was when Achilles admits his fault, and it seems to me this is bringing us to a pitch right now. So the two are facing each other in battle. Athena deceives Hector by taking on the likeness of another character. But finally, that disappears, and now the two face this final battle and what, what may be the death of either one of them. Um, 437 at the bottom, about line 95, book 22. So these two in tears and with much supplication called out to their dear son, but could not move the spirit in Hector. But he awaited Achilles as he came on, gigantic. But as a snake waits for a man by his hold in the mountains, glutted with evil poisons, and the fell venom has got inside him, and coiled about the hold, he starts malignant. So Hector, 
would not give ground, but kept unquenched the fury within him, and sloped his shining shield against the jut of the bastion. Deeply troubled, he spoke to his own great-hearted spirit, Ah, me, if I could go now inside the wall and the getaway, the gateway, Polydamus will first, remember, Polydamus has been, the two have been close. Repeatedly, Polydamus has said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and Hector has generally said, you trouble me, you trouble, you always oppose me, and, and now he's saying, if Polydamus would, were here, I, I'd have to face the shame of, of the situation that I'm in. Polydamus would be first to put a reproach upon me since he tried to make me lead the Trojans inside the city on that accursed night when brilliant Achilles rose up and I would not obey him, but that would have been far better. Now since my, by my own recklessness I have ruined my people, I feel shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing robes that someone who is less of a man than I will say of me, Hector believed in his own strength and ruined his people, thus they will speak, and for me it would be much better at that time to go against Achilles and slay him and come back, or else be killed by him in glory in front of the city. Um, in, a, in a couple of pages, he will try to make an agreement with Achilles. He'll say, um, if I kill you, I won't desecrate your body. If you kill me, don't desecrate mine. Um, honor our bodies. There's that value of the body. But I want to take a minute with these lines. What do you all make of Hector at this moment? What's the difference between Hector going into this battle and Achilles as we've learned to see him? Flesh that out, which well, can you? He's not motivated by a sense of internal honor, it's a sense of external shame. Yeah, yeah. Does everybody see that? He's far more concerned about what other people think of him <coughs> than he does for acting from something intrinsically good or noble in itself. I think that's a hard thing for all of us because we're so often preoccupied with our self-image. You know. Is everybody clear on that? He cares, he's far more concerned at this point. I feel shame before the Trojans, the Trojan women with the trailing robes, that someone who is less of a man than I, his pride. I mean, first of all, who is less of a man will save me. Hector believed in his own strength and ruined his people. Thus they will speak, and as for me, it would have been much better at that time. That he's far more concerned about what people think than about what's right at that moment. Remember, Achilles has already reached that point where he's accepted his death. He's going into battle for something else. But his concern is not what people will think about him. So once again, it's just reinforcing this notion that I've been speaking about, that it's only when a man, at least as Homer presents him in this book, it's only when a man renounces himself all that he has, accepts his death, that he has nothing to be afraid of anymore and because he's fearless, he brings something to his battle that others don't. How easy is it for any of us to get past our fear of losing our lives or our pride, saving face, okay? Hector is arrested by it here. So I think what we're seeing, if you put the two men together, is something tribal that's been cultivated in Hector in this world um, that's 
He's, he's the, I think, he's a great man. He's a great warrior. I mean, you can't take, Hector is an extraordinary warrior. He's the best of the Trojans. But Homer's pulling back the veil here and he's showing us that there's something in the way that, that, and that's not the case with Achilles. And Achilles will defeat him, okay? So right at this moment, we're, we're going to the heart of the difference between these two civilizations, okay? That's one of the important things about the end. Um, I don't want to go through the funeral games because we don't have time, but just to, just to quickly pass through them. Um, Achilles holds funeral games for Patroclus. If you go on over to um, 462, roughly, somewhere in there. On 457, Achilles brings out all of these prizes for the... Uh, Chariot race. I don't want to go through them, but there's a long list of things. And then on page 458, this is book 23, about line 290 or so. He gives a list of the warriors who are going to participate, who are going to compete in the um, chariot race. So line 287, book 23. The first to rise up was the Lord of Minu, Melos. The next was Diomedes. Go down a few lines. After him rose the son of Atreus, Menelaus. Um, go down a few lines. Um, fourth in order of his horses with flowing manes was Antilochus. By the way, that's Nestor's son. And I want you to hold on to that name. That's Nestor's son. Okay? Because he's going to win, if you remember it. I'm sure you all did. If I gave you a quiz on it, you'd be able to... Um, he wins. But what Homer's doing is, is giving us, like he does with everything, he's giving us the order in which men should be honored. So if things went according to their abilities, this is the way they should come in. It won't happen that way. But fourth was Antilochus, and um, fifth over on the next page, about line 350, so spoke Nestor, because Nestor just gave advice to his son Antilochus. He said, on the curve, remember, remember to use art. That if, if, you, if, you're, if you're clever about the way you maneuver your horses, you can cut him off at this point. So he's teaching him a method as a, as a charioteer on what to do in a certain circumstance. So it takes almost a page. Line 350, after it says, so spoke Nestor, the son of Nelius, and he returns to his place. Fifth in order, his horses with flowing manes was Meriones. Now, the, the horse race takes off, and you know that they, they're in that order. Eumelus is winning, but suddenly, um, um, Athena takes the whip from Diomedes and it causes Eumelus's chariot to actually turn over and crash. Diomedes loses his place and then it's, it's a race basically between Antilochus um, and um, Diomedes. Now um, going over 464. Wait, before, sorry, before you do. As the chariot race is unfolding, all the men who are watching are quarreling on page 462, 463. It's, it's book 23, about line 470 to 490 or so. All the men are watching the horse race and they start quarreling among themselves on who's where and who's going to come in next. Does that sound familiar? I hope it What? Who's laughing? Explain it. What's going on? Who laughed? Somebody. Did you? Come on, you get. Did you? Who did? Talking about primaries. 
Oh, I see. Yeah, it is. If you, if, you, if, you, if you were to tune into the Super Bowl and you had a gathering over, typically what are the men going to do? Huh? They're going to bet and they're going to argue. I mean, they're going to, and they're going to, sh- I mean, it's men are funny and I, sometimes. I mean, they're funny um, because if you watch them, they're so, I mean, it's like they're, vir- they're living a virtual world because they're so invested. It can be boxing, it can be basketball, it can be football, but it doesn't matter. Get men in a living room and they're going to start quarreling. No, he's going to win. No, that, no, you've got to, I mean, they, they will just quarrel. Um, because they're, they're so identifying their own prowess with that guy. It's like, it's an identification of pride. And they go at it. And sometimes with unhappy results. While these men are quarreling on page 463, about line 485, Achilles steps in. So he spoke, and swift Aias, son of Oileus, was rising up, angry in turn, to trade hard words with him. And now the quarrel between the two of them would have gone still further. By the way, get men watching a sports event in a bar when they've been drinking? You're all following this. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, more than. Has anything changed? <laughs> men identifying with power. He's going to do it. No, he's going to do it. Does he? No. So these men are quarreling and getting angry, and they're about ready to fight. Here's the first fight. We're taken back to the beginning. How did the beginning start? It was with a quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. Nobody to settle it. Now Achilles steps up. Achilles. Sorry, God. Achilles steps up. And now the quarrel between the two of them would have gone still farther had not Achilles himself risen up and spoke between them. No longer now. I can't believe. I'm probably going to spoil your TV at home with men from the rest. <laughs> Don't. Enjoy it. Um, and if you can find something Achilles in you, bring it out. Achilles. Um, they would have gone still farther had not Achilles himself risen up and spoken between them. No longer now Aias and Idomeneus continue to exchange this bitter and evil talk. It's not becoming if another acted so. You yourselves would be angry. Rather sit down again among those assembled and watch for the horses, they and their strain for victory. He goes on. This is why Homer was called the educator of the West. Because you can't turn from one page to another without learning something about ourselves and a better way of behaving. Particularly in war where your life is at stake and things can get violent. Now the horses come in and um, Antilochus wins and Achilles is gonna give out the prizes. Um, Bottom of 464, this is about line 535. But they're not in the order in which they were expected to come in for the reasons that I gave. And Antilochus, interestingly, cut off Diomedes at a curve. He followed his father's instruction using art, art, the proper technique on how to do something and cut him off in one, even though Diomedes had the superior horse and he was a superior warrior. Bottom of 464, so he spoke and gave approval to what was urging and he would have given him the horse since all the Achaeans approved, that is for the first place, this stellar horse. Had not Antilochus, son of great-hearted Nestor, stood up to answer Peleid Achilles and argue Achilles, I should be very angry with you if you accomplish what you said. You mean to take my prize away from me? What is that an echo of? Right? You all know? It's the very beginning. 
You're going to take my prize? That is, you're not going to give me what's due? So we're looking at a repeat. We're looking at another instance of how the Iliad opened. Um, Take my prize away from me with the thought in mind that his chariot fouled and his running horses, but he himself is great. He should have prayed to the immortal gods. That's why he came in the last of all in the running. But if you are sorry for him and he's dear to your liking, there's abundant gold. Give him all that. I'm not going to give up my horse. I deserve it. I won. But the mare I will not give up, and the man who wants her must fight me for her with his hands before he can take it. So he spoke, but brilliant Achilles favoring Antilochus smiled. He's trying to, um, it's not placate. He's trying to give him his due. Um, and then um, Menelaus, or I mean, um, yeah, Menelaus um, stands up. He said uh, about line 570, Antilochus, you had good sense once. See what you have done. You have defiled my horsemanship. You have fouled my horses by throwing your horses in their way. Though yours were far slower, come then. Um, judge between the two of us now and without favor so that man of the bronze armor and Achaeans will save us. Men allow us using lies and force against the kill. These are men of honor who are ready to kill each other now. At that moment, um, Antilochus gives up the horse because Menelaus is older and here's Homer as an educator and um, Menelaus so Antilochus is showing respect that because he has um, Menelaus gives the horse up he says you keep it and the gifts are distributed appropriately each man according to his due Now stop and think about this just for a moment. It seems like nothing more than a chariot game. But twice the men were going to, they were going to get into a brawl. So what we're watching here at the end is um, a repeat of the beginning with one fundamental difference. And that is the Achilles has settled both of them. He did it by telling the men to stop behaving that way. And he did it in the second case in the way that he gave gifts by giving each man a gift that was his due. So that, now stop and think about the change here, because each man is being given his due. So there's a spirit, what I, what I would call in the ancient world, and in, in the Christian world, a spirit of magnanimity. A spirit of magnanimity. Magnus, large, nimity, large heart, generous. The Old Testament God is often described in terms of a large heart, magnanimity, giving to those he cares about. Achilles is not bitter. He's not arbitrary the way Agamemnon was. He's giving these men his gifts. And these are all out of his bounty freely. Okay? Does everybody follow this, how different it is from the beginning? In the beginning, we were in a a war in which men were going into war, resentful of the wounds against them. That's what started it when Paris took Helen, right? Crises comes to get his daughter back, ransoms, Agamemnon refuses the ransom, and the quarrel starts. It's all about booty, possessions. At the end, the, 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 the terms of the battle are still there, but Achilles answers them himself out of the generosity and something that's come to him that he didn't have in the beginning. Sorry, yeah, Chuck, go ahead. You mean that epithet? Yeah, the winged words. 
They're all winning. Yeah. Boy, you catch me. I mean, I, my God, boy, I, it's been so long since I Let me offer a thought. I mean, off, you know, off the top of my head, bottom of my heart, too, I hope. Um, I think I said this before. You know that periodically in the Iliad that Polydamus and other, the bird, the, the, the readers, the, the uh, prophets, will take readings from the birds because the birds belong to the God of the heavens. So when they see a bird pass by, they see it as an omen. There will be a reading of it. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Um, but there's this sense of um, a divine. This is going to become very explicit in the Odyssey, by the way. In the opening pages of the Odyssey, um, you're, going to, you're going to be presented with 100 suitors um, trying to force Penelope to marry them. The gods keep coming to the suitors, and they don't listen to them at all. The Odyssey is going to be about men who don't pay attention to the gods. We know in the Iliad that, that periodically people misread the gods, but they're concerned about them. The birds are an emblem of something higher. I think wing and words fits into that category because there's a sense that it's, it's unburdened by our bodies, that we're, our minds go to something higher. Um, one of the, is that clear? Yes. Yeah, the, you, I've said this before. It's a, it's a funny situation we're in as humans. I've said... I, you know, I've encouraged you to read these things out loud because when we go into the privacy of our bedroom and read them, we read but the, the readings in our head as thought. It's, un, it's unincarnated. In our heads, there's no carnation. It's, there's no body, we, right? We've just got ideas. They don't have a body. Um, that's not a small thing because we're humans. Um, but so winged words suggest to me just that, that there's... Um, as another example, in the Odyssey, Odysseus is going to be taken home by the Phaeacians. They're going to describe their ships as going across the sea in the same way that men think. It's already, it's, I'm not kidding, it's already an anticipation of the computer age. Because th thinking will get them there. They're there. They're not cumbered by the body. And it's not a good thing, because as humans... I mean, it, well, no, it's, it's a thing you have to be careful about. And I think wing and words suggest something like that, that the thoughts are unencumbered, you know, um, and they're, they're moving towards higher things, transcendent things. They belong to the realm of the birds and higher things. Um, okay, there are... I think eight there's archery, wrestling, um, spear throwing. Achilles is giving from his own bounty freely, and at the at the in the, in the event when the I think it's the spear the spear throwers come up, Agamemnon stands up to participate in that game. And if you've read it, you know that Achilles says, "Sit down. Here's the prize. We all know your greatness." So. He's showing, once again, this magnanimity to the king who so mistreated him, giving a gift freely. He doesn't even have to compete. It's a way of honoring a king. So what we're watching in the And by the way, you all know this is the first Olympiad. These are, the, these are where the Olympic Games started. There's this love of athletic prowess, what the human person can attain. It's in celebration of the passing of a man, Patroclus, in honor of the human body, leaving this world. And it, in this um, event, 
We're watching Achilles step forward to honor his friend and to, to do it in a way that settles things that could have never been settled in the beginning under Agamemnon. So we're watching something new enter this world. Now, are the men aware of it? No. Is Achilles aware of it? I'd say not. Agamemnon aware of it? No. Um, we know, we won't see it, but we know that Achilles is going to go back into the war after this happens. He's going to kill Hector and die. We won't see it. The book ends with the lamentations of Hector when, he, when Priam brings the body back. Um, but this is the last, I mean, one of the last scenes in which we'll see Achilles. But there's this great honor that he shows to men, and he's doing something that's radically different from the way things were done in the beginning. So we're watching a reversal, the, the action turn. And I've tried to point out at various you know, times in the plot where we can see the turn taking place, okay? Um, now, Priam comes, um, Achilles drags Hector's body for 12 days. The gods finally get upset with him. And I, want, I really want to, because we're much tender in our world, some of us are. Um, um, he drags the body around for 12 days, and it's only after 12 days that the gods get angry and they come and he has to stop, and it's at that point that Priam comes. I just want to say this, and I don't want to get into a quarrel here, but just remember, for, for 12 days it's okay. So it's understood that, that um, satisfying justice because of what Hector did, particularly in wanting to cut off his head, and we've seen things about Hector that are not that for 12 days it was okay with the gods. But at some point they said, enough, enough, it stops. And it's at that point that Prime comes to ransom Achilles. I don't want to go into that, but I want to look at this scene between the two of them. Um, because a number of important things happen here. You know that Priam gathers all this booty together and he gets really impatient with all of the servants and he says, in anger, um, Hector was a god. He was, like, he was like a god. He was a god among men. I mean, that's that sense of over-aspiring, you know, that's in the Father. Um, and finally, they, they pile up the booty on the wagon. And uh, Ergofontes, who is the stealth god, he's the one who leads the souls to the dead. We'll see him in Odysseus, or you know, in the Odyssey again. Um, Ergofontes appears to him um, and acts as his guide to take the wagon into the Achaean camp. So they sneak in and um, Priam has this wagon load of booty and he comes to Achilles to ransom the body of his son because he wants to give Hector a proper burial. Page 487, it's the final book, 24, about line 475. Um, Achilles just finishes his dinner. Tall Priam came in unseen by the other men and stood close beside him and caught the knees of Achilles in his arms and kissed the hand. Remember, you clasp the knees because the knees are a source of power. Take the knees away. We, we go down on our knees when we pray. We go down on our knees because it's an expression of our powerlessness. We turn to God for help. It's not uncommon in this book for people to take the knees because... That's the seed of, take, put it different. Take the knees away, can a man be a warrior? Just nearly impossible. Um, 
top of the next page is when dense disaster closes on one who has murdered a man in his own land and he comes to the country of others to a man of substance and wonder seizes on all those who behold him. So Achilles wondered as he looked at Priam, a godlike man, and the rest of them wondered also and looked at each other. But now Priam spoke to him the words of a suppliant. Now remember, the day before these men were ready to kill each other. It's just important to keep that in mind. If they'd been present to each other, there would have been a killing. These are bitter enemies. Priam now comes and the two stand before each other and Priam supplicates him. Achilles, like the gods, remember your father. So he's appealing to Achilles' sense of a father to honor him as a father so he can have the body of his son. Um, go down. Fifty were my sons when the sons of the Achaeans came here. Nineteen were born to me from the womb of a single mother. The interesting, one of the ironies about this, he has no sense that this could have been avoided if he'd given Helen back, you know. This is the cost. Nineteen were born to me from the womb of a single mother, and other women bore the rest in my palace, and of these violent Ares broke the strength in the knees. You, um, you killed a few days since as he fought in defense of his country, Hector. Achilles, take pity upon me, remembering your father, yet I am still more pitiful. I've gone through what no other mortal on earth has gone through. I put my lips to the hands of the man who's killed my children. So he spoke and stirred the other a passion of grieving for his own father. He took the old man's hand and pushed him gently away. And the two remembered as Priam sat huddled at the feet of Achilles and wept close for the man slaughtering Hector. And Achilles wept now for his own father. The two men are weeping tenderly in each other. I, I, we don't have time because I, I, I want to um, I, I just leave you with some things. But So there's this amazing moment that they share because of family relationships and love. Um, um, at the bottom of 49, Achilles speaks to their past and their shared grief, um, their lineage. And then um, Priam says, do not, beloved of Zeus, make me sit in a chair while Hector lies yet forlorn among the shelters, rather with all speed, give him back so my eyes may behold him. Now I want everybody to follow this closely. Accept the ransom we bring you, which is great. You may have joy in it, go back to the land of your own father, since once you have permitted me to go on living myself and continue to look on the sunlight. Now hold on to that for a second, because I want to... Prime has brought all this booty. In a moment, I don't want to read it, because I, I want to get to a, a couple of last points. Um, Achilles is going to say to Priam, take shelter outside. So as soon as he receives the ransom, he says to the old man, a king, take shelter outside because he wants to protect him from Agamemnon. Because if Agamemnon finds out, he's going to want his booty. So once again, Achilles is honoring this king, this enemy, take shelter outside and then you know, go in the morning. So the tenderness doesn't stop between the two of them, okay? Now hold on to that. Now Prime has just said, give my body back, accept the ransom we bring, which is great. You may have joy of it. Go back to the land of your own father since once you've permitted me to go on living myself and continue to look on the sunlight. Then looking, now follow this. Then looking darkly at him, spoke swift-footed Achilles. No longer stir me up, old sir. I myself am minded to give Hector back to you. A messenger came to me from Zeus, my mother who bore me, the daughter of the sea serpent. 
I know you prime in my heart. It does not escape me that some God led you to do the running. Therefore, you must not further make my spirit move in my sorrows. For fear, old sir, I might not let you alone in my shelter, suppliant as you are. So prime for a moment um, is frightened, but um, Achilles allows him to go outside. He receives the booty and... um, and the story will end with Priam taking Hector's body back into Troy. And then you know he's going to be received by, um, um, by Hecabe, his mother, Andromache, um, Helen. And the, and the book will end with a threnody, a lamentation, the prayers and songs of those grieving for Hector. So the book will close on that note. Um, now, because I want to be careful of the time. Why does Achilles get mad at this moment? We've just been witnessing these two men who are bitter enemies weeping together, exchanging gifts freely. Um, Achilles offers him shelter. um, And then Priam says this, and then Achilles gets mad. Some critics say, this is Achilles doing what we've always seen him doing, getting angry and ready to fight. So this is either Achilles returning to something instinctive in him or there's something else going on. Any thoughts? Does this remind you of anything in the Bible? With Christ? Maybe a stretch here. Your minds are better than mine. Mine mine gets loose. (laughs) Prime has just said... Let me take my son's body, take this wealth, and go home. What's the problem with that? Can Achilles go home right now? Huh? Why not? Yeah. Is everybody clear? His destiny, when he made that choice, he knew he was giving up his life. It's as if Prime is tempting him out of his destiny. Who's that remind you of? Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter Peter wanted Christ not to suffer, to go through with his trial. Achilles made a choice. Priam's tempting him. Does Priam have a clue? He has no clue. He's saying, take the body and, you know, go, or give me my body and go home. Achilles can't go home. So... um, just another thing to think about. I mean, these scenes are so subtle, but we're watching, we're watching something happen to a man that has radically changed him from who he was at the beginning. He has admitted his failings. He accepts his death. He has settled quarrels. He's going to go back into the battle. He's going to die. And that's the end of the Iliad. But we're, I believe we're witnessing the emergence of something new in our civilization that will distinguish us, you know, from my reading, from all the other civilizations in our world. This is the beginning of the West. And the amazing thing about it is it lines up so much with Genesis and Exodus. Abraham's called out to a destiny. He's going to go to a promised land, this thing. There will be battles and all sorts of things. But um, one last thing. Um, just I've been suggesting or I, I think raising this question, what was Christ doing before he appeared? Was he not doing anything? 
Um, he didn't incarnate. He didn't come in and take on our sins. But was he just asleep? Was he not doing anything? Was God not present when, you know, even Homer has some sense of a divine order. He doesn't understand the gods the way we do, but he certainly understands a lot about the divine order. So I've been raising this question is, what was Christ doing before he came? Do we have any sense? I, I raised this question with uh, Merchant of Venice, with um, Helena in All's Well, with Anthony and Cleopatra. You know, do we, are we aware that God is at work in the world in all of these situations? We're not in church. We're not looking at the icons or the cross, you know. We're in the world. Is God at work? been a question I've been asking. I just want to remind you of some of the things that struck me. Um, um, as I was reading it, thinking about resemblances to Christ. Um, remember that, that what, what happens with the fall of Troy, with the destruction of Troy, is that old sins of hubris against the gods are being answered. Laomedon, who built Troy, remember, offended the gods. We talked about that story. Priam, a fault, was an offense against the gods. Um, Troy is an enabling city. It's noted by its hubris. It's, we've seen it in Hector again and again and again. So we're watching a city fall um, partly because it took the gods for granted. Priam, when he says, let the gods decide between us. It's an act of arrogance, really. It's presumption. He's not taking responsibility to do something himself. It's like he's a pious man, when in fact he's not. So there's something new emerging right now, some new sense of man in his relation to the gods. I've suggested a couple of connections. They're, they're not clear and definite, but at least they're things to think about. Remember that when Sarpedon went into the war, do you remember what Zeus's response was? He wept tears of blood. He had to give up his son. That's God having to sacrifice his son, even though he'd rather not. And he weeps tears of blood. Christ shed tears of blood in the garden. The father gave him up. Abraham had to give up Isaac. We're not in a prophetic world, but I'm, you know I've been saying that we're in a world so close to prophecy that there's a prophetic element to some of these great poets. They see, how in the world they saw this stuns me. It's like they're right, whatever gave them, they looked at things in nature that we ordinarily look at and don't see anything at all, and they found something so close to our faith that it continues to stun me. Zeus weeps tears. Achilles is frightened at the thought of dying by water. Odysseus will be, so will Aeneas. How do we begin life in Christianity? We take that away. We are immersed in water. That's the moment when our original sin is washed away in death. That's what we believe it is. The Christ dying, a death to ourselves. The psychomachia with the gods going at war. And, the, and remember the ground shuddering. And I think I gave this example in Dante's Divine Comedy when Stasius emerges after he's done his penance. The mountain shudders. The divine order responds. Um, Achilles sleeps and he, um, he dreams of the ghost of Patroclus who comes to him and he realizes the importance of the body, that we can't live without a body. That's who we are. That's our glory. We're supposed to take care of it.
There's this great reverence for the body. And finally, um, what I'm calling the parousia. You all know what the parousia is. It's a church term. The parousia is our word for the second coming. That Christ will come in his glory and power and judgment. Every one of the epics we're reading, I'm giving them away. Every one of the epics we're reading will end with a parousia action. The return of the king. When Achilles comes back into the war, who can stop him? He has that judgment with um, Lycaon, spare me. And he says, as if coldly, Patroclus was a better man, he had to die. We're all gonna die, stop it, stop your. So there's this sense of a pre the return of the king, restoring order, bringing judgment, Troy will fall. Where did all that come from? God, <laughs> where did it all come from? Anyway, that's the Iliad, okay? So what we've been reading together is this extraordinary, the first, what I'm calling a foundational work. It's the foundation of Western civilization, dealing with the, this inherent dignity of man. We're gonna read the Odyssey about something extraordinary in marriage. I think it's help we all need. And the Iliad, the Aeneid will be about the founding of the city, but those are the founding works. Um, so next, next week we'll have the movie, but I'm hoping you'll all start. The Odyssey is a much easier work, much, much easier to work. And I wanna just show you this before you leave tonight. I've been showing you the plots of all of these. In the beginning of the Odyssey, Telemachus, who is Odysseus' son, remember, he's having a up without a father. His father was away 10 years at war. All the men came back, except Odysseus. He went on 10 more years of the journey. So he's been away 10 years, the, the length of the war, the nine and a half years we talked about opening the story. He's been away another nine and a half years. So what's gonna happen? Something's about to happen, right? So Odysseus has been away for 20 years. He sets off in search of his father and he comes to two marriages. He comes to Nestor's house, whom we've already met, and Menelaus's house. We're going to learn something about marriages. Remember, Nestor was involved in the war for 10 years, and so is Menelaus. So these are two couples who have returned from a war experience and are now at home together. So we get to see two different marriages. So pay close attention to those marriages. What do you see in those marriages? When we leave here, we go to Odysseus's adventures at sea. And what we're going to see is that the most dangerous ones, let me see. He's going he's to be meeting feminine and, feminine and masculine archetypes. They're archetypes, they're metaphysical figures. I'm going to ask a testy question here. Of the two archetypes, male and female, which would you think would be the more dangerous? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I want to hear somebody. Somebody risk this. Male or female? Who, somebody's got some courage. The two most dangerous archetypes that Odysseus is going to face, and they, there's no violence. It's going to be Circe and Calypso. Hold on. For the nine and a half years that he's gone, on sea, remember he's been at war for 10 years. 
He sets off for home and he ends up on this journey. For nine and a half years, he's at sea. He's going to meet all these archetypes. Um, Circe's going to have control over him for one year. She's an image of everything sexual in a woman that will bring out the, the sex in man, the beast. Um, Calypso has him for eight. So for nine of the nine and a half years that he's away, he's under the control of a woman. So we're going to get a... So the Iliad has given us a pretty up-close view of men. Indirectly, it's not very direct, but indirectly the Odyssey is going to give us a, an open window on females in the female cycle. I hope the women will stick around. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is at sea for nine and a half years, and then he will come home. This would be Nostos, the homecoming. The central theme of the Odyssey is Nostos from which we get nostalgia to return to beginnings, to go back home. For the Christian, it will be to return to God. Here in Homer, it's for Odysseus to return to his family, to his wife. What happens when he returns is going to bring to fulfillment everything that's been going on for 20 years. So it's a pretty amazing story. Anyway, that's the end of the, or the Iliad. We start the Odyssey in a couple of weeks. Did you guys enjoy the Iliad? Yes. I hope you did. It's a great book. It's a great book. If you did, it would be a great read. It really would. Yeah. Okay. It's been a pleasure doing the Iliad with you guys. Um, see you guys next week with food. With no one. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get